This episode contains conversation about domestic violence. Please take care of yourself as needed. I was like 10 and I was already like, I need to be a strong black woman. So many of us black women didn't get to really find a voice and feel fortified in our feelings because very early on, we were given this messaging. Something about us made us unworthy of being victims. For me, strength is not defined as my ability to gracefully navigate and withstand unending trauma. Welcome to Sanctified. Join this congregation weekly where hot girls and holiness align. Where nothing is taboo and revelation is more than the Bible's last book. I'm Deborah Joy Winans. I'm a wife, a mother, a sister, a daughter, a friend, and a lover. And I'm learning to live this life without fear or shame in abundance the way God intended. And I'm LaVon Briggs. I'm a Queens girl, a joy chaser. I'm a daughter of the church and the diaspora. And I'm a Black woman spiritual leader who's no longer at war with her body. You ready, LaVon? I'm ready, sis. What up? Hey, now. How you doing today? Girl, I am excited. I am nervous. I am all the things. Nervous? My book coming out, child. (laughs) That's a blessing. Yeah, girl. I'm nervous because this topic is sensitive. It's countercultural, right? Talking to Black women about centering their pleasure. Family church and society ain't do that for us, especially when we were Black girls. And so my debut book, Sensual Faith, The Art of Coming Home to Your Body is an invitation for women, particularly Black women, because you know I write for sisters, to embrace their sexuality from a place of pleasure rather than shame as it pertains to our spirituality. So my focus on pleasure and resiliency is so important for Black women because we have been force-fed these false narratives around suffering as salvific, suffering as a demonstration of faith. And it's time for a new story. And so you can, you know, child, we be talking about Amazon taking over the world. But if you go on Amazon and leave a review, it's actually quite helpful because then it'll push it to the top. And we want this message to get to as many people as possible. And so you can do that. Of course, you can request it at your local bookstore. And it's also an ebook for my Kindle girlies and an audiobook for my audio oratory audible people. And I read it. So you'll have me in your ear even more. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, it's time to talk more about pleasure and less about suffering, especially for Black women. And talking about Black women, let me just ask you, what did you learn about being a Black woman from your mother? My mother was born on the island of Barbados and was brought to this country in the wintertime when she was 11. And so from a very young age, I think she learned, you just got to show up when you're supposed to and do what you got to do. And she's always taught me that, that you get to go to school, go to college, get a good job. You get to travel. You get to do all the things that she didn't get to do because she got pregnant with me at 20. So I learned from her to dream big. And then there was another part that wasn't so helpful, which is to put yourself last. (laughs) 
Mm. So telling me to dream big, but then I see her not follow her dreams. That made me a little confused. But now that I'm grown, I'm like, oh, I got to go after everything I want with everything I have. Wow. What did you learn from your mother about being a Black woman? I learned a work ethic. Mm. I've always known my mom to work since we were little. And she had a full-time job. My dad traveled. He was singing. And she was there to pick us up and take us to every, you know, I had gymnastics. I had tap, jazz, ballet. Yeah, extracurricular activities. Yes, all the extracurricular activities. And I had three brothers. And so it was four of us. And they had basketball practice or tournaments or, and she was taking us everywhere. And I saw her work and take care of us with so much grace. And so I think I learned from her, I can do what I got to do. But then I started to think as I got older, at what cost? Mm. What role does or did resilience play in how we were raised? Child, well, here's the thing. Caribbean women are taught, you stand by your man no matter what. So my daddy was out here in these streets, okay? (laughs) And my mom was right there. And so I'm like, where's dad? He's out partying. He's out hanging out. And you're home with us. Like, you don't want to be outside? She's like, no, I love being in my bed and stuff like that. And she would just do everything she could to make us happy. I remember when I was 12 years old, I wanted a pair of shell swoop sneakers. And my mom went from sneaker store to sneaker store in Manhattan to find me a pair of these shoes. And she brought them home and she gave them to me. And I was so grateful, but I wasn't walking all the blocks with her. So I learned that to be resilient meant that you had to do everything on your own and try to make everybody happy and take care of everybody else first. Mm. Ooh, not the healthiest thing. It's so interesting. What you go through shapes what you understand things to be. So I hear that. I think for me, resilience, which I think we should talk about what it actually means. For me, I just felt like if you fall down, you got to keep getting up. Mm. What you can't do is stay down. I don't have the choice to stay down. I got to get up. I got to keep going. Gotta, gotta, gotta get up. Gotta get up. So that was what that meant to me just in my circumstances. But what does resilience actually mean? So resiliency is the capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. Recovering quickly? Child, (laughs) look, (laughs) sometimes you got to recover slowly. Like I'm thinking of women who have babies. You went through this, you know, and we have like a snapback culture. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I don't think that we always have to recover quickly. I, I think I've had to be resilient, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you get to toss me around like Tupperware just because that's what I had to be. Absolutely. And it's just about recovering. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be putting a timestamp on how you recover. Right. You know, when I had my baby, I, there was no talk of a snapback. I was like, let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you something right now. I just grew a whole human. And what people forget is that it took you 10 months to grow this human. A year. So it's going to take you some time to just begin your recovery. You know, people don't talk about the fourth trimester. People only talk about, oh, you have three trimesters, then you had a baby. Mm -hmm. The fourth is figuring out 
what's going on with you? What do you need? So I think that resilience is just the idea of recovering. As long as you keep getting up, I don't care if you get up slow as molasses, then you're resilient. And I think we have to have some of that. For sure. And I think that there's a difference between resilience and suffering. I don't think that God desires for us to suffer. It just doesn't track with scriptures like, I've come that they might have life and life more abundantly. It is say I've come that they might suffer <laughs> and suffer <laughs> ongoingly. Like that's not <laughs> what Jesus wants for us. We need to know that we don't have to suffer, that resilience is necessary, but suffering is not. I think my question is, what are you carrying or suffering through that is not yours? Especially as Black women, we have a tendency, because of everything that our ancestors have gone through, they haven't always had the capacity to not help out so-and-so. Right. You know, think about our people working the fields and seeing, ah, 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 no, no, don't do They watching. You got to do this. You know, being the person that's trying to make sure everybody is staying together or make sure everybody is doing what they got to do so that nobody, you know, tells on them or does this or does that. So we haven't always had the capacity to just not bear each other's cross, so to speak, or mm -hmm. to not be paying attention to everybody else or only be thinking about ourselves. But now that we do have that capacity, what are we carrying or suffering through that is not ours to suffer through? Child, because it's a gift to our foremothers and to ourselves to say, I don't have to carry everybody else's stuff. That I think is very healing. Like at a cellular level. And I think it's new for a lot of Black women as well because family, church, and society did not raise us to think that we were only supposed to focus on ourselves and put ourselves first. That's just not what we heard growing up. And so I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions around that. Black women are seen as, you know, some superhuman that can do anything and everything and make it through everything. And the reality is... We cannot, <laughs> but I'm not going to lie. When I gave birth to my child, I looked at my husband. I said, ain't nothing I can't do. I am a superwoman. And a lot of times because women can do so much, we do feel in certain areas like, ooh, I just did that. Right. <laughs> the, the thing is, <laughs> should we have to? That's the question. And the answer is no. There are things that we simply don't need to handle and things that we can't handle alone, you know? And we don't have to. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is getting sisters to internalize that you don't have to suffer. Suffering is necessary for a reward or a blessing is a popular myth. It comes from misconstrued teachings around scriptures. I'm thinking about 1 Peter 5 and 10 that says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, first of all, back in the day when Peter wrote this, the Christians was getting persecuted for being Christians, child. And while we can argue <laughs> that Black women are being persecuted today, especially our trans sisters, I think this part about suffering, it even says in the scripture, a little while. 
right? It's not supposed to be going on forever and ever and ever. And so I think really grounding ourselves in the theology of a God of grace and care, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have hardship. It just means the suffering and the extra grit and grime around it, it doesn't get you a crown in heaven, sis. Like there's no reward for suffering. And so how can we redefine and expand this? Well, first, we don't have all the tools to end all the suffering in the entire world, but we can lean on one another for support. And I think if we're discerning about who we can be vulnerable with, then that will help us to co-create communities so that we can just kind of let it all you know, go and not worry about being judged. And in order to co-create community, you have to know that you deserve community because one of these elements of suffering is going into the cocoon, right? And withdrawing and feeling like I got to carry this burden on my own. When the Bible talks about being equally yoked, talks about two oxen sharing the weight, right? So we're not destined to shoulder burdens alone. And I'm thinking specifically of my dear sister friend, Erica Totten, who is a healer and she's a part of this uh, community called the Wild Seed Society. And they actually share everything, including income, money, coins. I've never seen any kind of dynamic like that. It's giving acts, honestly, truly. (laughs) But I think that that's a great way to be able to really see or redefine what resilience, suffering, What all of this means for us as Black women, as I said earlier, I think there's a measure of resilience that we all have to go through just in life because life is going to offer you a lot of things. Even in the career that I've chosen, you get a lot of no's. Even when you feel like, whoo, I just did my best work. Ain't no way they're going to look at this tape and be like, not her. Please, that's this is me all day. I did that. And <laughs> getting a no on some of the work that you think is some of your best is like, uh, it'll have you questioning, is this what God called me to do? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? And, you know, God will continue to send you little confirmations here and there that that help you withstand and continue to be resilient, to continue to keep getting back up. And so I think that we all have to have that. But in having resilience, we have to make sure we remember to have grace for ourselves, even in the midst of feeling like, ooh, I may have caused this thing that is making me have to be resilient. Ooh, I didn't do this right. And now I'm here, but I, I got to keep going. I got to get back up. We may have caused that, but we've got to have grace for ourselves. We have to remember we're human. We have to remember that while we're walking through this and having grace for ourselves, God is walking through it with us. While you were talking about you know, your chosen career, it makes me think of my parish ministry, my church ministry path, and even teaching in classrooms, these different roles that I've had Once they realized what it meant to have a Black woman who's thoughtful and educated and social justice oriented in the space, it was like, oh, wait, you know, we we wooed her during the the courting and interview process. But now that she's here, she got to go. And I know a lot of Black women have experienced that where you're yourself, the whole interview process, and then you get to a place and it's like, actually, no, that's too much for us. So either you quit or you're fired. And I think the resilience is what you were saying, like, no, I'm going to find my way, right? But the suffering is to try to stay in spaces that are clear that they are not safe for you. And so 
I want Black women to know that the resilience will come as you move and you pivot and God directs your path and sends you more aligned opportunities. But to think that you have to stay in mess to suffer as like a badge of honor. Mm -mm. No, we not with it. And neither is our amazing testifier on today. Yes. And we are excited to have Tanya Denise Fields. Inspired by her experiences as a single working mother living in a marginalized community, Tanya Denise Fields founded the Black Feminist Project in 2009 as a response to sexist institutional policies, structurally reinforced cycles of poverty, and harsh inequities in wealth and access to capital. Right. Lord, we can say that again. Mm. But with a bachelor's in political science from Baruch College, Tanya has become a sought-after public speaker. Yay! She is also the creator of Mama Tanya's Kitchen, a web-based cooking and lifestyle show. Let's hear from Tanya Denise Fields now. My name is Tanya Denise Fields, and this is my testimony. Growing up, what I learned from the Black women around me was that we needed to be strong, that we were supposed to persevere, and that we should not look like what we've been through. Always, inherently, it was like, we do not break. White women get to fall apart. They are weak. They need to be saved. I would hear my mothers and my aunts sit around and talk, and they would watch the stories. And when a white woman fell apart or started crying, I remember them saying things like, oh, that's that white woman stuff. I come from a specific type of Black women. They are the great-great-granddaughters of enslaved Africans who grew up in the rural South. That story comes with very specific coping mechanisms. I was a fat kid. By the time I was 10, I was fat. I am dark-skinned. I've got big nose. And being the tallest and the biggest amongst many of my cousins and my siblings, when things happen to me, the first thing people would say to me is, you too big to be crying like that. I learned very early on, probably when I was about five or six, I had this little boy, Robin, and Robin would push his fingernails into my skin. And I was significantly bigger than Robin. And I would come home every day crying. I remember my mother saying to me, you are too big to be crying like this and letting this boy pick on you. If you come in here again, crying about this little boy, you're not going to have to worry about him. You're going to need to worry about me. So the next day, I lit Robin's behind up in class. I think my mother was letting me know very early on, you cannot go out in this world and let folks mess with you because nobody is going to come and save you. My mom, she didn't handle my emotions. And so I learned very quickly on that crying was associated with sensitivity and sensitivity for me was weakness. And I didn't understand why like certain people got to be sensitive and I didn't get to be sensitive. But in terms of my own emotional confidence, my ability to say, this is a thing that is happening to me and this thing is wrong and stand on that. In terms of feeling like my feelings were valid and acknowledged, I didn't have that skill set. I didn't. I don't think I really realized how much of that stuff I missed. I was like 10 and I was already like, I need to be a strong black woman. So many of us black women didn't get to really find a voice and feel fortified in our feelings because 
very early on, we were given this messaging. Something about us made us unworthy of being victims. For me, strength is not defined as my ability to gracefully navigate and withstand unending trauma. My deepest wish for Black women and Black girls is to disavow the notion that struggle is your inheritance. I think if there was one thing that I would say to little Tanya, you are not limited by arbitrary things such as your size, your skin color, your dialect, or what zip code you come from. You are going to be a beast, I promise you. And you are also going to be a beauty. You already are. My name is Tanya Denise Fields, and that is my testimony. We'll be right back with the fellowship after this. I'm super geeked. We have you here, Miss Tanya Denise Fields. Welcome to Sanctified, beloved. Hallelujah. I feel like sanctified is one of my favorite words. I used to hear that word so much growing up in a Black Baptist home. My mother loved the word sanctified. Mm -hmm. This just reminded me I need to introduce this word to my children. I need to use it as much as my mama used to use it when I was a child. I love it. Pass it on. (laughs) Your testimony was really, really beautiful and sincere and honest. You mentioned how you were often discouraged from feeling or showing your emotions as a child. What was the process like? for you to realize that it was okay to be emotional or emotive or simply just fully human? I think the process for me was realizing that being the antithesis of all of those things wasn't necessarily helping me either. And on top of not helping me and on top of not of it not yielding the expected results, right? It was like eating me up. You know what I mean? Like, I think for me, what happened before I knew the term throat chakra, right? I was always hoarse a lot. I was constantly like grappling with all of this stuff in my throat. And in another life, I wanted to be a professional singer. And although that dream has left me, singing was very important to me. So singing started to become a struggle because of all of this stuff that I had happening in my throat. And I remember a friend of mine who was like kind of all into the the yoga and the Reiki and all that. She was like, well, you need to interrogate what's going on with your expression. What are you swallowing? What's stuck in your throat chakra? What is it that you're holding on to? And maybe you need to like tap into what it is that's stuck there. And I started realizing that was like the first time that I had sort of been like got acquainted with this idea that whatever we've got going on emotionally, it will manifest physically, right? That book, The Body Keeps Score, talks a lot about that, right? Like how maybe your brain forgets, maybe your heart doesn't really remember, but your body gonna remember. It's gonna sit in your body. And so for me, the wanting to physically heal some part of my body is the thing that started to make me say, I'm actually just gonna say the thing. You know, like, I'm gonna stop thinking of things like sensitivity or emotional as a pejorative. I'm a full human being. 
Right. Tanya, that is so good. Using your voice, telling your story and honoring your emotions, that being sensitive and emotional is a good thing. It's holy, right? That's something that you came into in your womanhood. So you also mentioned how your mom didn't handle your emotions as well when you were a child. So I want to shift to your childhood and the evolution from there. How did your relationship with your mother evolve and grow over time? It evolved into an even bigger mess. <laughs> okay, it, do, it does that sometimes. <laughs> yes, but you know, one of the things my mama used to say to me was, sometimes it's got to get a hell of a lot worse before it gets better. And it's ironic that I'm saying that and we're talking about my mom because my relationship with my mother did get worse for me anyways as an adult you know, culminating in a big blowout during Christmas. And that was, I want to say, about three years ago. And then last year, my mama's husband died. And my relationship with my mama's husband was just as fiery and volatile as it was with my mama. But for me in that moment, you know, all of that other stuff that we had going on didn't matter. Somebody was gone. Somebody had left this plane. And so for me as her oldest child, I don't know, just something clicked in my brain. You know, my younger sister called me and said, you know, Henry's in the hospital and I could hear in her voice that this was not going to be good. And she didn't have to say it. It was like I was being called because I'm the oldest sister. Right. That was what it was. It was like almost like a we need you right now. And so I just I stepped into that. That older sister. Roll. <laughs> just a deep collective breath for all the, the big sisters. And I know that as an older sister, you can learn early on that you are the caregiver and caretaker for everyone else. But I love in your testimony when you said that you want Black women to disavow the notion that struggle is our inheritance. So good. Sacred text. So what was the moment when you realized that for yourself? When my children almost watched me die. Me hearing them in the background screaming, mommy, no, please, as a person who I thought loved me, who I thought I loved, who I had two children with, put their arm around my throat in a chokehold. I literally know how that feels. I mean, on a physical level, I know what it's like when you start to feel the consciousness slip away from you, when the room is in a vignette, in a circle, and it starts to close like those old movies. And then the movie ends. And I said, if this vignette closes, my life ends, right? And it literally ends in front of my children. And then they inherit this trauma, this struggle that they never asked for. And clearly, I don't love myself enough. That is not up for discussion. I knew in that moment, like, girl, you got some work to do, right? But do you love your children enough to, like, know that you have internalized some really unhealthy ideas around what loving someone means and what loving yourself means? Right. I think in that moment, I actually was like, I don't even have a praxis or a practice for self-love. I better find one, though, because my very life depends on it. And so in that moment, I was like, my actual factual life depends on me understanding that I don't have to carry the whole world, somebody else's trauma, generational trauma, all other kinds of BS on my back. That does not belong to me because it will literally kill me. That is facts, Tanya. Wow. Self-love is so important. 
Because without that, you cannot give anything great to anybody else. And it took me a long time to get there. And what's interesting is, because I know if we ask our mothers or grandmothers, I know if I ask mine, what their self-love practices were, they would be like, honey, what is that? But, you know, my grandma will make sure she goes and does her water aerobics. No, this is Thursday. I got to do my water aerobics. Oh, and then I'm going to get my nails done. I'm going to get my... She has things that she does that she would never say, oh, this is my self-love. But it is. Finding moments for yourself and understanding the things that you need. What are now the practices that you've put in place that really make you feel, you as Tanya Denise Fields, feel all the love that you need. Saying no, that's it. Knowing that I need to say something to someone because I'm so uncomfortable and I'm so triggered and the people pleasing part of me is like, just swallow it. You should just shift. Let's not make any waves. And the part of me that's like, nah, bitch, we love ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have this conversation today. You know what I'm saying? You are going to confront this. You are going to express a boundary. You are going to unpack some unhealthy things red flag in a relationship with someone. And I don't just mean romantic relationship. The hardest conversations be the ones with the sisters that I love, with the relatives that I value. Right. Because I think sometimes we conflate confidence with self-love. And it's very different because I was always a confident person. I didn't love myself though. Right. And I think sometimes, especially in the world of capitalism, we conflate doing all of the performance of looking good or in investing in things that are supposed to make us feel good as a practice of self-love. But self-love is not like I love myself all the time in these sort of like romanticized ways that we think about it. Self-love for me is not about um, even liking myself all the time. Like sometimes I just cannot get it together. I'm like, I cannot stand you, girl. What is wrong with you? But self-love kicks in. It's like a default. You know what I mean? It's like a a fail-safe mechanism for when you know something around you might be getting ready to harm you or cause an issue in your life. And self-love says, I love myself enough to know that I am going to exercise my right to put myself first or at the center of my own universe. Period. That's beautiful. I want to shift a little bit to the Black Feminist Project, but I think that took a lot of self-love to create. So maybe it's not really a shift, but can you briefly describe the work that you do with the Black Feminist Project and just the impact that it has had on you and other Black women that you know? The key word here is briefly. Can I briefly describe? Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, in a nutshell, the Black Feminist Project enriches the lives of restores agency, justice, joy, and health to Black women, girls, and non-men, often referred to as marginalized genders or mages, right? And the children they care for, with an emphasis on mother-led families. And we do that by creating dynamic, engaging food and reproductive justice programming. Mm. That was a response to my lived experience. I was like, you know what? I didn't just get here because I woke up one morning and decided that I wanted to live in substandard housing with a bunch of kids and, excuse my language, a bum-ass baby father, right? There were a set of circumstances that influenced my choices because the political is personal. You cannot separate the two. Mm -hmm. 
And so if I'm going to make the road by walking, right? Because that's what I was doing. That's what the Black Feminist Project was. It is literally a documentation of me making the road by walking and then saying, you know what? There's a bunch of sisters just like me. There's a bunch of other Tanya Denise's and Tanisha's and Deborah's and LaVon's. Girl, do y'all want to come with me? Y'all want to bring these babies with me? Because I also knew from watching my grandmothers, from watching my aunties, from watching my mothers, because I got two of them, right? That good, bad, indifferent. The only reason that black women, particularly brown skin, phenotypical black women continue to exist is because we have each other's back. So what does it look like for me to be like, I'm actually going to create an organization that literally like the tagline is sis, I got your back. You know what I mean? And that's what the Black Feminist Project is about. The Black Feminist Project is about saying, I am going to create physical spaces where we can have each other's back and where we can bring our children and allow them to do the thing that Black children so often don't get to do. And that's actually just be kids. I love that. Because something about these children, okay, they are coming with it. And so as we are co-creating this new world and we're inviting intergenerational conversation in, what are the biggest differences in Black women who are Gen X or Xennials down to Gen Z, Black girls, especially in your working community? We all got our stuff with us. Let me say that. We we all come with our stuff generationally, right? I feel like the Xennials and the Gen Xers, kind of historically, currently, we are the generation that was probably the most unnurtured. <laughs> like, we were latchkey kids. We were getting ourselves to school. We were, like, coming home and fixing our meals and then doing our homework and then balancing our parents' checkbooks and all kinds of stuff, right? But what it did for us is it made us a generation that, you know, I could be hanging out our head, ear falling off, blood coming out your nose, and you still get up and go to work. We just did not learn how to really tap in. And so what you started to see were Gen Xers and Xennials who were completely burning out, right? Who were like, and I'm talking about like checking themselves into hospitals. We were seeing our mothers with fibroids and all of these other things because we know that stress lives in our body on a cellular level. We now are the parents of the Gen Zers and they got to witness this. Their response to it has been like the pendulum swinging all the way to, to the right, right? And so for them, they have started to create a framework around what it means to understand that rest is an actual human right. Last year or the year before last, I had hired a whole office full of Gen Zers, right? Because I'm I'm just be so inspired by their willingness to activate. I, I be so and they be ready for that action. They they love to smoke. So I'm like, yes, you know, being a hood girl who also loves a little smoke, I'm like, come with it, Gen Zers. Let's do it. And what I realized with the Gen Zers is while I understand and appreciate their willingness to interrogate language to create new language, to push back against the ways in which Gen Xers and Xennials will burn themselves into the ground. I also feel like at the risk of getting canceled, they could also take a nod from us in regards to creating healthy practices around resiliency. I have Gen C children. I am the mother of six children. 
I be stressed out, right? <laughs> and I am raising them as free Black people as much as I possibly can in a racist capitalist world. And my daughter, who also works for the organization now while also going to school, we have had some come to Jesus moments around be your full self, learn to express yourself, ask for what you need, but also sometimes, girl, you just got to show up. Right. And showing up, not just so you can be exploited for your labor, but showing up for yourself. I do think they need to develop a little bit more resiliency. But we need I think what that looks like, though, is we have a conversation around how we redefine what resiliency looks like. We have to have a multi-generational and intergenerational conversation outside of the white gaze. Right. In a landscape where we have dismantled. Uh, capitalism and reimagined what the world could look like for us. Come on. What then does resiliency look like? I think that needs to happen, but I don't think we're there yet. We closer though, because you came here today, Tanya. We are closer. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was so powerful. I love it. Reimagining. It's the imagination for me. Shout out to Ebony Janice Moore. I didn't know you was going to take me there, Tanya Denise Fields. <laughs> My God, I could sit here and listen to you for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I would talk to you all day, too. You are amazing. Thank you so much. This is very nice. Appreciate y'all for having me here. Many thanks to Tanya Denise Fields. We're going to take a short break, but coming up next, it's offering time. Now, hold on, y'all. Before we get to the offering, we got some church announcements. We are so very grateful for all the love you've been showing Sanctified. It is affirming and we feel it. And we want to continue to build and welcome more of you into the Sanctified community. So we need you to do a couple things, okay? Number one, please tap the follow button so you are notified of everything we do over here at Sanctified. Numero dos, don't forget to rate us on the Spotify app. Tap the star and give us five of them things, child. And tap that bell so you are notified as soon as a new episode is released. All right, all hearts and minds are clear. That's it for our church announcements. Let's get into the offering. It is my favorite time at Sanctified. It's offering time. It sure is. And on Sanctified, we bring affirming words to offer to you. So my offering for the people on today is expanding on something that Tanya Denise brought up, which is the throat chakra. Now, I know for my girls who go to yoga, my yogi girls, you probably are very familiar with that. But for the uninitiated, in the yogi tradition, there are these seven chakras or wheels of energy in your body, and they all, you know in an effort to be healed and whole, they should all be aligned or open or activated, right? And so when I think about the throat chakra, I'm thinking about your mouth, your tongue, and your actual throat. I'm thinking about the words that you speak, the words that you swallow, the stories you tell, the stories you bury, right? And how we get free through sharing our stories. There's a scripture that says they overcome by the blood of the land and the word of their testimony. And so if you are looking to amp up your testifying in your own life, there are a few things you can do. You can journal and maybe read it aloud. You can share something that you've been holding with a trusted confidant. You can talk to your pastor, your therapist, your homegirl, your loved one, your boo bae. And also, if you want to go a little deeper, the throat chakra is represented by the color blue. 
So you can wear blue, look at blue, eat blue foods, like all sorts of really fun spiritual things. Make it your own practice if it feels aligned, but definitely say something this week that needs to be said. And I think that's helpful in healing. I think we need that. And also, I think for me, one of the bigger things I took away from Tanya's testimony and our fellowship was the many different facets of self-love. Understanding that if something is popping up in you that's not feeling right, it is okay, not just okay, but wonderful to say no and set boundaries so that you are protecting yourself. And that is indeed loving yourself. There are things in life that we have to go through. We can be resilient in them and we can move with grace and we can set up boundaries so that we are not carrying the things that are not ours to carry. And so we are not suffering. (laughs) I love that for us. Ooh, that was such an encouraging episode. Yes, indeed it was. Y'all, thank y'all so much for joining us on Sanctified today. Please come on back and get most sanctified with us next week and bring a sister friend with you. Or two. Or three. (laughs) Also email us at sanctified at unbotherednetwork.com to let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about next. And until then, remember, you you are worthy. Sanctified is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Jamel Hill's Unbothered Network, Lodge Freeway Media, and Exit 39. Hosted by Deborah Joy Winans and LaVon Briggs. From Unbothered Network, Lodge Freeway Media, and Exit 39, executive producers are Jamel Hill and Evan Dick. Head of content for Unbothered is Christina Tapper. Head of network production and operations is Rich Burner. Creative producer is Ashley J. Hobbs. Editor is Ayana Angel. And associate producer is Rachel J. Pilgrim. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. Creative executive is Grace Delia. Senior program manager is Jessica Dow. And program manager is Jenna Lonergan. Special thanks to all the cross-functional teams at Spotify that helped bring this program to life. This episode includes original music produced by Cheyenne G. New episodes of Sanctified come out every Wednesday only on Spotify. So be sure to hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. <laughs>